Stay tuned after the episode for the full versions of the songs you'll hear throughout. We auditioned. Oh, my God. We, the auditions were endless, it seemed like. And we were trying to get a bass player, too. But we couldn't find the keyboard replacement for Taylor. Taylor was a phenomenal singer, amazing Hammond organ player. He, nobody could to voice the Hammond like, like him. He was just, he had kind of a jazzy feel for everything. And his voice was really, really strong, too. So we needed to get a keyboard player. And we, at that point, bought, us, bought ourselves a, um, a Yamaha piano. This is before the digital pianos that we have nowadays that you can buy for $200 that sound like real pianos. It was a real hard thing to get a piano to sound good. So we, you know, everybody had these little electric pianos and things. We spent, I guess, with cases and all, it was about $6,000. So we had this big keyboard rig, Hammond organ uh, piano, and we need a keyboard player to play it now. And we have this big, huge following. So we're searching high and low and auditioning Nobody seems to quite fit. I was uh, self-taught. I started really early age, and, and um, first thing I t- got was a guitar because it, it was actually my dad got it from my older brother, and I was just like, you know, it was just one of those things. I, I just was so intrigued by it. It was everything I could do to just say, you know, that that's that's not my that's not your gift. That's mine, and I just pretty much took it from my older brother because I started playing it more, and then my dad kind of realized that I had some something there. Nobody else in my family had anything, so my brother didn't. I didn't have to worry about any competition from him because he wasn't going to pick it up and do anything with it. So I started guitar, and then my mom had gotten a piano from, you know, one of our relatives or something, and I just, one day I was just tinkering on it when I was, you know, five or six years old, and I just, something happened, and I just really couldn't get away from it. So that's how I started playing. And then I had a lot of influence by my parents, you know, you know, supporting me and, uh, you know, f- through financial stuff, keyboard players, you know, everything's expensive and we always wanted the best stuff that's, you know, expensive and hard to carry. But but I grew up in the South, born in Mississippi and um, was influenced by that music and country music and have come to, you know, really appreciate, appreciate all kinds of music. They ran across a friend that was had a band in Connecticut and our our sound man, Joe Finelli, was doing a sound consultation for them. And I think Taylor had just left the band and they were looking for a keyboard player. So I had, I knew her from, she had moved to Jacksonville for a little while and she was moving back up there and he was doing their sound consultation and she just said, hey, how's, how's Southern Cross doing? He said, no, well, as a matter of fact, we're looking for a keyboard player. So she mentioned my name and through Joe, he you know, passed it on to uh, Joe Pruitt and Sonny and Tiny. I think Joe was the first one. Pruitt was the first one to come down. Joe sits there and said he watched him sit down and play the piano solo to Southbound Jessica and something else, note for note, which Jessica is one of the hardest solos in uh, Southbound as a killer killer one too. So we realized then that there was a, somebody out there that could do it. Gary came up and auditioned the band, checked it out and everything, and joined the band. And it just worked out like a charm. Gary couldn't come up for, I think, a month or so. He had to take care of, you know, getting sorting out, sorting out all of his stuff and 
Jacksonville where he lived. And he moves up, and we rehearse. I think we, were, we, we didn't have a rehearsal space at the time. We uh, actually had our own place that we rehearse eventually, but uh, we were using the drummer's house, which is where Gary was going to be living. And we went there to the, re- the drummer's house and rehearsed for almost a week straight. And Gary didn't think he was ready. Was, regardless of whether you think you're ready, <laughs> we're going to play our first gigs. That's how I came into it. And, you know, I met Sonny and, and just was so intrigued by his talent and of everything he plays, you know. So he taught me a lot and carried me along because, you know, I just learned a lot from them. It's so amazing to be a good player and then to join guys that were just phenomenal players, you know, to me at that age, but at 21, so. Well, uh, at that point, I was 30 years old. And uh, in many ways, I felt like his older brother, you know, at this point. And he was, if anything, and I say this the, the most love, Gary... Me being the rhythm guitar player for our band, I was trying to get the rhythms together for everything. I spent most of my energy just trying to get him to ease back a little bit because he was just so incredibly on top of everything. He, was, he, he, is, he is like a honky-tonk piano player that you can't believe. I remember playing the first gig with Gary, and we played South Bend was the first song, and when we got through, the people just went nuts. Yeah, Gary went nuts too. Yeah, he did go nuts. Mothers is the first gig I think he played with us. It was up in Wayne. Had two rooms, two bands playing at the same time. In the, the room where we were, it would probably hold 800, maybe 1,000 people. So he walks into a band with 1,000 people in the audience. He was totally blown away by it. And we were too. Yeah, it was amazing to come into that and, and very addictive. I mean, it was like, I'm, I'm here. I'm, you're not getting rid of me because it was, it was such a cool thing. The stuff we played was not easy. It was very complicated, and to have the stuff that it, there was such a chemistry there that you just—it's something you felt instead of something you did, you know. It's funny too because being influenced by Billy Joel too, I have a lot of Billy Joel influence and uh, and Billy Powell, all the Billies, and uh, but coming up there, you know, I was like, I'm going to New York. I'm going to, I called it New York, and even over the Jersey Shore, we were playing all over there. But I was so into Billy Joel's, I was learning New York State of Mind and all this stuff, not realizing I wasn't going to be playing any of that stuff in Southern Cross Band. But it was a, it was such a learning experience, and and all the songs, the Grateful Dead stuff, I'd never really even heard much of it, you know, in the South. So thank God I had all the other Southerners in the band, and all the. Uh, the Jersey Boys, our road crew, you know, were all, most of them were living with me because they were my age. And I was a roadie for Southern Cross Band. I ended up getting an opportunity to roadie for the band because a friend of mine who was living with me at the time was working at the OB Diner in Point Pleasant and he ended up meeting JT 
one night after a gig, and they hung out and talked a little bit, and JT told me he was in a band. Next thing you know, this friend of mine, Mike McCormick, was offered a job by JT to be a roadie and set up his drums. So he took that gig, and then I think it was six or seven months later or something that Mike called me and told me that one of the guys that had worked with the band had quit, and there was an opening, and coincidentally, I had been taking guitar lessons from Sonny, so the manager spoke to Sonny and said, who is this kid, you know, that you're giving guitar lessons to? You want this guy carrying your stuff around? And, uh, and Sonny was like, yeah, he, he can tune our guitars and change strings, sure. So, so I ended up getting a gig, and uh, I think it was a Wednesday night. I ended up riding to, I think it was Pebbles, somewhere in North Jersey, Rochelle Park or something. And uh, so I got there with the band. The stuff was already set up. Pretty crazy. I got in there and the place was packed. I think there was actually two bands playing at night. It could have been Molly Cribb or somebody else on another stage. I was just amazed about how many people were in the bar. And I remember that a lot of the New York Rangers and Islanders used to come out and see the band play. See these guys like six foot five, six or seven, coming up into the backstage at a time. And you're, I was just praying that nobody said, hey, who are those guys? Get them out of here because there wasn't a chance I was even looking up into their eyes. In the first couple of months, I wasn't used to being up all night. There was a lot of nights where I would start to fall asleep during the second set, and Mike would just come over to the other side of the stage because he had one side, I had the other side. I'm changing most of the guitar strings, but we were, we were working the stage to make sure everything stayed together. And he would watch for me while I would crawl under the drum riser and sleep for the last set so that I could be awake to break down afterwards and a lot of times people be like Where, where's rick where's rick and mike would just like look at him meanwhile i'm sleeping underneath the drums while the van was sitting right on stage southern cross had such a huge following that whenever we got to a place and we were setting up the phone would ring non-stop and they hire a couple guys they call barbacks sometimes whoever's opening the bar they get there three four hours early they get all the bars stocked and do everything they need to do to get ready for when the club opens because these clubs aren't open during the day they open the doors like an hour before the show starts and it got to be so bad with people calling to try to get free entrance into the bar they would be calling for rick and mike the whole time we were setting up the phone bearing and then a lot of these people working in the bars would be like, Mike, Rick, Mike, Rick, and, and they would start answering the phone, Mike and Rick's place. So Mike and I had this joke, this long running joke in all these clubs, you know, that in the afternoon, the place was Mike and Rick's place because the phone just rang and we tried to get as many people in as we could, but the guys always had a guest list for the band. So we really, on the pecking order, if there was any room for guests after the band had all their guests in, then Mike and Rick could actually tell their friends, you know, oh yeah, just go to the door and give them your name. Actually, the Henry Paul story is probably one I could share. Henry Paul that night was playing and we opened up for him and somebody had bought him a decanter, a half a gallon bottle of Jack Daniels. And before the show, he popped the thing open and he took a sip out of the bottle. And there must have been about eight or ten of us around. And he held it up and he's like, anybody interested in doing bubbles? And I'm looking, everybody else is like, what's bubbles? He's like, well, you hold the bottle up and see how many bubbles you can release into it. And everybody looked at him, are you nuts except for me? And I'm like, I'll do that. So I grab it and I'm like, gunk, 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 and I put it down and like I got tears coming out of my eyes. And this guy's like, I don't know, six four or something. I don't know what he is, but he's way bigger than me. At least that weighed me by a hundred pounds. I'm like, 
I don't know, 21 years old and 135 pounds wet. He takes the bottle and he starts guzzling it and putting a bunch of bubbles in. I think Gary Ross was in it at first for a couple of guzzles. He bolted out of the room. Next thing you know, Henry Paul and I sucked this whole entire half gallon of Jack Daniels down. And, and I have to say, it must have been after the gig backstage because all I know is that I passed out on the other side of the arena underneath a, a pine tree. And when Henry Paul's bus was leaving, the whole band Southern Cross was ready to leave and everybody was looking for me, wondering where I was. And it turns out that Joe Finelli, the sound man, decided he was going to take a walk around the arena to see if he could find me, maybe in a parked car, passed out in the parking lot. And the story goes, he saw my feet sticking out from underneath an evergreen tree in the back of the club in the bushes. That's a blur to me, but I know it was only a couple nights later we played with him again, and it was like we were looking at each other like we made a connection that night for sure, but he couldn't believe that this little 135-pound kid sucked that whole entire half a gallon of Jack Daniels down with him. He was impressed which <laughs> is pretty probably insane, but it happened for sure. The manager one night, John Gefford, who used to come out a lot really late, it seemed like his whole world was paying the band and then trying to find the road crew, you know, get the road crew to go where, with him somewhere. We ended up going into lower Manhattan all the time with him, with Chinatown, doing all this crazy stuff in New York till five, six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. In fact, the morning or the night that John Lennon was shot, we were all in Manhattan. We were actually there with the news crews and everything that day because we were still in the city from the night before. And the funny thing is, is we didn't hear it on the news. We came out of the club and a truck went by and in the dirt in the back, it said, RIP John Lennon. And we're all like, what? We thought it was some kind of weird joke, and all of a sudden then it would, we turned on the radio, it was all over the news, we just drove right up there. Anyway, John Gefford decided to get J.R. drunk as a skunk one night, who was my boss, who was responsible for driving the truck. John looks at me and goes, you're going to have to drive for J.R. And I'm like, that's not my job. And, and we go to leave Millie Chili, Millie's Chili, we're in, a, in an alley, a 15 mile an hour alley behind the place, parallel park. I go to back the truck up maybe three to five feet because a car had parked so close in front of me, I couldn't get out. So I cut the wheel to the right and I started to back up a little bit. I'm turning the wheel to the left. Now, meanwhile, JR's hanging out the window because he's about to be sick. And I said to JR, JR, keep your eye on the car in front of me so I don't hit it. And I start to turn the wheel to the left and just start to move. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 the whole entire truck is on the back driver's side taillight of this parked car. And I'm screaming obscenities at JR saying, I thought you were watching the car. Like, what are you doing? He's like, I was, you were clear. And I'm like, JR, we're on the car. We hadn't even noticed that we actually got hit by a cab. It hit the driver's side turned wheel so hard that it actually ripped the hole in the side of the guy's car from one of the lugs. He ricocheted off the truck and went about five or six car lengths up the road to the other side of the alley before he hit his brakes and put his car in reverse. And all of a sudden, we look up and here's this car backing up. I'm like, what the heck is this guy doing? I swear, I didn't even know he got hit. Here's a guy from central Jersey driving a truck registered in Tennessee and his boss is from Georgia and the truck is registered in Tennessee but has no insurance because Tennessee doesn't require insurance. It turns out that anything 17 feet or larger in the state of New York is considered an articulated vehicle, so you actually need to have a truck driver's license to operate it legally. 
So not only did I not have an operator's license, I didn't have insurance. I got a couple of tickets, and then I was told I had to pay for the damages to the cab and the parked car in order to not lose my license. And I'm like, what? So I go to the manager, and I'm like, hey, listen, you know, this cab driver hit me because you got JR drunk. You need to fix the car that we landed on and the taxi cab that hit us because I didn't hit anybody. And I ended up arguing with him for probably six, eight, ten months over it, and he just kept blowing me off. And then I finally got a letter from Trenton saying New York wants my license suspended. And I ended up surrendering my license, and I was just not happy about the whole thing. And that's eventually what caused me to quit because— it was just so frustrating working for a group. Now, look, it obviously wasn't the band, but the organization had actually hung me out to try. And I'm like, this isn't right. Yeah. So I ended up quitting because of that. But again, whether this gets on there or not, I don't know. But the reality is when the band disbanded, everything got split up between the band members. It was like an equity split. And I remember Sonny and Joe, I think they went to JT and they said, hey, listen, you know, you know all this stuff that went on. And the three of them came to me and said, look, we know what happened. We know it wasn't right. So we have a whole bunch of musical equipment that we're looking to sell off. And we want you to go look through the stuff, select a whole bunch of stuff that you think you might need or want or use. And we're going to give that to you for, you know, the situation that happened with your license. And I was pretty blown away. I called my buddy Freeze up. The guys were playing drums in a band. I was I'm like, these guys are offering me a bunch of stuff, man. We got to get over to this whorehands chicken coop because, uh, you know, I'm actually getting paid back for losing my license. And I, I probably got at least $2,500 worth of stuff out of there. Stuff I still own to this day and I actually use to this day. So I was pretty impressed by that. Definitely, I mean, at a time I, I was thinking, you know, these guys are as responsible as he is. I mean, he works for them, essentially, and nobody really seemed to care, but everybody was so busy doing everything that we were doing that I, I didn't really hold them responsible, but it was definitely kind of heartwarming to know that when all things were said and done, they made sure the right thing was done. And I guess that's part of being a family. just smoking hot you know Skinner had, had crashed in 77 and um, Southern Rock was still a very popular and hot thing I, I just think that the northern the tri-state area was just really eager for that too and to have these guys from down here south bringing it up there it was there was definitely a difference in what you heard from guys from down here doing it and guys from up there doing Southern Rock you know we were just a bunch of Southerners that, you know, had it in our hearts and true, you know, in our blood, true, truly in our blood. You know, I used to think it was funny that all our uh, clones up there that we were, were our friends, you know, that these other bands that would try to do what we were doing. We used to have softball games and play them in games and stuff. But anyway, 
They never beat us at that either. I think we usually won the softball games, but we'd always cheat and get you know people that weren't in our band that were real big to play softball. <laughs> but Southern rock is really a lot about how we grew up as kids in the South, and, and some things you know I grew up as a hunter and just being in you know I'm, I'm such a avid gardener and being out in the woods and stuff. I, that's why I live out in the boonies because I just love it. It's that has a lot to do with the the you know whether you write, they write these lyrics and how we were all brought up in the South. You know, being that I was 21, I was very cocky. At that time, I was, uh, I'd already befriended, at about 17 years old, I had befriended Billy Powell from Skinnerd and his wife, Stella, that was helping me do a, a, my solo projects and stuff like that and helping me manage my band. And so I was trying to write, I wrote a lot of stuff and I, and I was recording stuff, my own stuff, and never really came out with a record back then, but I had a lot of things on tape. But they, you know, helped influence me so Going up there, I was very adamant about that, and, and I think that I think I, I I don't think I know that everybody in the band, you know, was they were like, oh yeah, we're they already had that on their agenda. They just weren't quite shifting gears into it. So you know, we had some good stuff. That's kind of what did it. And we both we got together and started writing and putting our ideas down, and we're like, my God, we got some cool songs. So it evolved very quickly, and. Um, when you got that kind of talent, it's it's easy to come up with phenomenal music. You know, we could play with any band. In my opinion, there was uh, there's only one band that ever really I thought outshined us, and that was the band Orleans at Pace University in in um, over Purchase, New York. And that was only because of our own, you know, not taking those guys seriously. But everybody else, we took very seriously, and always held our own with, and which made our our fan base, you know, I guess appreciate us more, because they knew we weren't kidding around. You know, we were going out to do something, be for real, and we always were. You know, just for the longest time. It just, you know, it just takes perseverance and uh, a lot of practice, a lot of work, and a lot of hard headedness, and not giving up. We already went on stage and put on a show. But when we did, I saw that in these guys because, you know, when you have a crowd like that, it brings it out on you. But <clears throat> when we started doing the bigger shows and opening for, you know, Marshall Tucker and all these guys, being a Capitol Theater and having a, you know, gigantic stage show, and it makes you go to a, a different level in yourself and you try to, you know, perform even harder. Plus, you only have to do it for like 30, 45 minutes. <laughs> it's easier. <laughs> Less money and, and less work, but it, probably not less work. But yeah, those moments were probably the ones that, uh, to be able to get up there and play our stuff on a, you know, not to say that, you know, we had a killer sound system. A lot of people used our stuff, you know, when we did shows with them. But when we played, we did Marshall Tucker, there's like, you had Claire Brothers, and it was just like, you know, our PA system, I had like a monitor system around my keyboard that looked like our PA system. <laughs> I was like, it was a, mo I'm like, oh my God. So that kind of thing and being on a huge stage and then having, having the Marshall Tucker band and, <clears throat> and Dickie Betts and the Armour Brothers guys, having them standing on the side of the stage watching you. Like they took the time to go like, we need to watch these guys. And they came up and he's like, you know, and, and of course we, we, we were very humble, but, you know, it was like, we came here to kick your ass and take your stage away from you. And um, so we did it a lot of times, a lot of times.
mentioned we were auditioning bass players. This is the way Southern Cross audition would be like. Imagine we're, we're a very successful band on this club circuit. We would hear from our friends that we were doing these concerts with, the Henry Paul Band and all these you know, other bands. There was this bass player out in, in, in um, Oklahoma City. He'd be perfect for you guys. So we'd fly him in, you know, give him a plane ticket, they'd fly in and, and they'd audition. And we kept getting these guys that were all guitar players that wanted to, wanted the gig. <laughs> you know, it's, there's a real distinct difference between guitar and, and bass, even though I play guitar and bass too. But to mentally play the instrument uh, like we all wanted to hear it. You know, you, we wanted a real bass player. And my brother Joe does a fantastic job of playing bass too. We wanted to play with Joe for a long time. He kind of got stuck on bass, which he was really good at, but he wasn't real happy at it because he wanted to play guitar and we wanted to play guitar. So uh, we, we hired another bass player. This guy, uh, Buzz Meekins, he had played with Dickie Betts. He had played with the Outlaws. He would played with Molly Hatchet. He would played with all these. And, and he would also played with uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Uh, he played with Vassar Clements and with Michael Murphy. But he played with some really big national acts. And Buzz came in and was probably one of the, the best bass players I, I, I had seen. Nobody could play a bass solo like him. Oh. We did a show in Brooklyn or the Bronx or something like that. Buzzy was playing the bass solo on Great Ghost by himself, and his speaker caught on fire. Well, he's out front playing this solo, and he didn't know it, and the speaker starts smoking, and all the people are like going crazy. They're like going, this is great, and the speaker caught on fire, and, he's, and it's still coming out. I guess he's going through direct boxes. Come on, I don't know what, what happened. Finally, he realizes they had to put it out, you know, the fire out. He was all mad because the band wasn't going to pay for his speaker. It's like, no, you blew it. You got to pay for it yourself. He was a, a more of a uh, a bad influence. I'll put it that way. A bad influence on some of the guys in the band. And he was a divisive person. He caught a lot of division in the band. He caused that. He just wasn't the right guy. We didn't really get along with him as well, and that's one of the reasons why he left. And he was right at the very end of the run of the band anyway. So he left the last month before the band broke up. Joe moved over to guitar, and then he went back to bass. Windshields knocked out, tires slashed. We, you know, 
everything you can think of. And the good Lord's looking out for us because, you know, we've been some pretty wild places, walking through snowstorms. When the van's battery went dead right in the middle of the Belt Parkway, you know, we got it started a little bit late. Some friends of ours at a band, Molly Cribb, uh, had a very unfortunate incident with a prior manager slash booking agent where he sent these goons to destroy their equipment in one of their gigs. And they, in fact, did to the point where they had to have all new stuff. My name is Mousy. My actual name is Paula, but everyone knows me as Mousy. I uh, was on the scene working for another Southern rock band called Molly Cribb. My first experience of meeting the guys from Southern Cross was at a club in Long Island called Speaks, this massive, huge club. There had to be 2,000 people in the place. And um, I remember seeing them, and I looked up to the stage because the stage was maybe about six feet off the ground. It was pretty high. And I looked up at the stage and what appeared to be the tallest band of people I have ever seen in my life. I looked and I, I was like thinking, like, are they all that tall or am I just really short? Or is it because I'm looking up? And I actually looked at their feet to see if they were all wearing like giant like platform shoes or something. And I didn't realize until I met them in person that they were all like most of them over six feet tall. So I was like this little shrimp compared to them. But yeah, they were great guys. We always had laughs with them. Um, eventually, uh, the band Molly Cribb became, um, they, they joined the agency that Southern Cross was with, which was CTA, Creative Talent Agency. Um, that was Kevin Brenner's agency. And we uh, got to be great friends over time. You know, you're in the, you're in the trenches together, basically, you know complaining about the same bar owners, <laughs> whatever, you know, drinking the same drinks, doing the same drugs, you know, fighting the same fights. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was a magical time. I hate to, I, I would never tell my children that, but it was a magical time. We just had too much fun. There were days that I'm sure we all looked at ourselves and said, how do we get to do this? How is it that we're getting to do this? Like making a living and having this much fun. It was hard work though, but you know, we loved it. It was just addicting. It was so much um, excitement of everything that was going on. A lot of the bands that started out as, as cover bands were, you know, starting to go national. Those guys basically were just like right at the cusp of, you know, spreading out. They, you know, they were playing huge clubs. Some of the bands that did kind of climb out of the cover band hole. Southern Cross was one of the few bands that could actually transfer what they did as far as covering other people's tunes with their own spin on it. And then working their originals into their sets, which they wrote, um, you know, at a time when there was so much more open-mindedness to hear new music. And it got to the point where people would come and like, instead of yelling for Freebird, they were yelling for Blackberry Wine. You know, they, they were like yelling for their original songs, which was totally cool. When I was with Molly Cribb, I was a lighting designer, actually. I did all their lights. The crew and the band, we were almost like one machine. Everybody kind of like ate together and went on vacation together and hung out on our nights off together. Again, like just this whole little microcosm of society that we were privy to. Other people could not understand what we were going through. You know, it got to the point where people just stopped inviting us to anything because it would be like, oh, no, we can't go to your wedding. We can't go, you know, we can't go to your baby's birthday party. We can't go, you know, but, but we didn't care. 
we literally, nothing would stop us from the gig. So up until like the day I was getting married, I mean, like we didn't even have rehearsal. I'm like, no, we're playing the trade winds. We can't. So we're, we're, we're just going to go, go in cold. When my husband, the keyboard player, Michael Gorney, first met the guys from Southern Cross, Taylor was the keyboard player. Taylor, who is from Tennessee as well, had such a heavy accent. And my husband from Newark, New Jersey, you know, the two keyboard players, he, he was saying to um, the guys in his band, he goes, yeah, he goes, so Tyler said to me, you know, that he's using this keyboard and it was, you know, and, it, you know, and I told him it would be cool if he wanted to use my B3. And he kept saying Tyler. And finally, everyone said, who the hell is Tyler? And he said, the keyboard player from Southern Cross. And they're like, his name is Taylor. So he was like, oh, my God. He, he said, "He said my name's Tyler. I, everyone was calling him Tyler for a while until that all got straightened out. Yeah. Joe came to my wedding wearing a three-piece white suit. Everybody thought I was getting married to Joey. So it was like, you know, family members are like, is that the groom? And I'm like, no, that's my friend Joey from Southern Cross Band. They were always called the Kings of Southern Rock. Our joke in Molly Crib was that the guys in Molly Crib wanted to dress up in, in women's outfits and then become the Queens of Southern Rock because they got tired of that rivalry. But our exposure to the other bands were when we were booked, as you know, when we would play alternating sets or one would open for the other and the other would finish up the night. So on those nights... No one got home before sunrise because we were all hanging out and, you know, afterwards and socializing <laughs> and whatever. So, uh, yeah. And sometimes we wouldn't get home for a couple of days, even if we had the next day off. So that's how it went. One club that we worked up in New York State, for some reason, we had an idea to somebody went into the manager's office and they were looking for something. Somebody in the crew, you know, the, you're in there in the daytime and it's like the, the cleaning people are there. And I don't know what it was that they needed or whatever, but we went into the, the manager's office and somebody was looking for something, you know, I don't know if they needed a tool or something to fix something. And they opened up this storage unit and a big blow up doll fell out onto the floor. And we were just now, so then we were just trying to stuff it back in there. And I'm like, dude, we need to get the hell out of here now. <laughs> we're trying to stuff it back in there. So we, we they, they threw it in there and they slammed the door shut. And all of a sudden we heard pops. And I was like, oh man. This guy's not getting a date tonight. I didn't know what to say. So um, we would play, and, and I'm sure the guys, uh, you know, from Southern Cross did the same thing. We we got to the point where we were opening for these national acts that were, you know, Marshall Tucker and uh, the New Riders of the Purple Sage and, you know, a couple of the Outlaws and a couple of other bands that were playing. So we um, got tired of it after a while because, honestly, the deal was, you know, they'd say, oh, you're going to build up your fan base. And our crew would come in with our huge PA and our huge lighting system and get no money for it. We would just, like, get to play, you know, oh, you get to open for the big act. So we um, got tired of it. The club in Seaside Heights had this huge marquee outside that was like one of those, just like out in a regular theater, like from both sides, you could see as you pulled up on Boulevard. They had the New Riders of the Purple Sage name up there tonight, New Riders of the Purple Sage. And I was like, seriously? 
They can't even put our freaking name up there. So because the New Riders of the Purple Sage is such a long name, they use small letters to fit it all on the marquee. And my soon-to-be husband and one of our roadies, Big Jim, who has since passed, broke into the room that kept the, the letters in it. And they went out in, I was freaking out. I'm like, you're going to get killed. You're going to get killed. They went out onto the street in broad daylight with the ladder and put our name above the new riders of the purple sage. And I remember our drummer came in and he said to me, Oh my God, I wish I had a camera. He goes, I will never forget till the day that I die pulling up and seeing the lights up that says Molly crib and these huge letters. And then underneath it's like new riders of the purple sage. And these little letters. I want to say it was literally a matter of days between Southern Cross pulled the plug and we did too. Uh, you know, it just, again, because the scene was so huge and the clubs were gigantic. So it wasn't a matter of like, okay, well, we'll just pivot and go to being a restaurant and have little acoustic acts. These were clubs that held several thousand people. And when the drinking age got raised and the clientele stopped coming, they couldn't maintain the overhead of having, you know, these were places that had like three or four gigantic bars and, and you know, six or seven bartenders at each bar. The place um, in Rochelle Park that was originally called The Hole in the Wall and then became Pebbles, we played there every week for years. It was dollar vodka drinks all night long. And from nine o'clock to 10 o'clock, whatever you were drinking, buy one, get one free. And the club owner said to us, he goes, your crowd has an $18 per person drinking average. The drinks were a dollar a piece. We wrapped it up not long after the drinking age went up in 1983. And we honestly, the, I think the difference between what we were doing at the time and maybe what other people our age were doing at the time is we realized that these were the best times of our lives. We knew that it's just not getting any better than this. I remember there being nights where I would just stand there and go, oh my God, it just doesn't get any better than this. I don't care, you know, if they don't pay me, I don't care. You know, it would just be like the crowd would be totally into it and the lights would look great and the sound would be perfect and the band would just be on with a groove going on. I was like, that's it. I could die now. I don't care because this is as good as it's ever going to get. And, you know, we got to live through that and we appreciate it.
That led us to the summer of 1983. We would take off at the end of August, at the end of, or say Labor Day, whenever the season was kind of over, and we would get ourselves a one-month paid vacation. So, you know, I'm thinking, this never happened in any bands I was in in the past. I'd um, gotten engaged to my wife, Lisa, and my son's mother, and our wedding was set for September the 24th, when we were supposed to be on vacation. Well, it was September the 3rd, our last gig, which was in Rockaway, a club called Rockaway in Rockaway Beach, New York. Kind of uh, the writing had somewhat been on the wall, but now it became official that, well, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back because that was always the understanding. Everybody was seeing a month, you know, no telling where you go, you know, but things had to go on, you know, so that's time keeps marching on. You got to get in step with it or fall behind. Next time on Just Can't Wait. Most of the Southern rock bands were being uh, dropped from their labels. When you have a lack of leadership and a lack of a common goal, things are going to fall apart. I try to avoid anything that I'm doing these days that's, that I'm selling liquor. You know, I don't want, I want, I want to sell my music. I don't want people to come because they want to drink. There's not another soul around. There's no place for us to play. We should have heard our father's voice. Heard them when they say.
Play me. Won't you play me? 